Good morning. Hope you're all doing good. Uh, Pastor Lou is away today, so you are stuck with this guy. Ooh, a little applause. I like that. That's, a, that's why I did that. I wanted the applause. <laughs> but we will still be pressing on in our study of the book of Hebrews. Because here at King's Chapel, we do, in case you're new, expository preaching, which is the study of whole books of the Bible, going chapter by chapter, verse by verse, trying to glean the true meaning of the text in its original context and apply that to our lives. So that's what we're doing this morning. And we're continuing in Hebrews chapter 9. We'll be in verses 23 through 28. So if you have your Bible or your Bible app, you can turn and or click there. And if you have neither of those, there are, as always, Bibles in the back for you to grab and use and even keep if you need one. So, as you're finding that passage, let's do a little recap. Previously in Hebrews. So, if you have been tracking with us the past few months now, you know um, that this passage we're going to be on, be in, has been built on quite a foundation. The author's writing to an audience of, of Jewish Christians who are in, encountering persecution, and they're wrestling with this tension of returning to these past traditions and, and old covenant ways and following Christ. That's, there's a, they're in this tension. And what we've seen in these nine chapters so far, the author is imploring them to see that Jesus is better than all those things, and really anything else. And over the last few weeks specifically, uh, we've delved into the specifics of the how and why Jesus is better than the, the traditional practices uh, of the Old Testament, of the Old Covenant worship. We saw why he's a better high priest. We've seen how each aspect of the temple or tabernacle points to the perfect work of Christ. See, that tabernacle was set up in a very specific way to demonstrate this barrier that exists between man and God. There's the outer wall made of linen, and then there's each segmented piece of the tabernacle itself. And the closer you get to the most inner place, as we learned, the most holy place or holy of holies, the less access people had each Tier meant less and less access. There were literal curtains and barriers. And the entrance to that Holy of Holies was allowed for one person once a year, and that was the high priest. And uh, if you remember, that's where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. It was uh, covered on all sides with gold. It was filled with the golden urn of manna. It was fill, uh, had Aaron's staff in it that was budding. Uh, it had the tablets of the Ten Commandments. And on top of that ark were the cherubim overlooking the mercy seat. And this is the mercy seat is where the high priest would, would place burning coals and incense and the blood of the sacrificed animals on the Day of Atonement. The mercy seat was also known as the place of propitiation, meaning propitiation, wrath bearer. So all the blood that was poured out over the coals on this mercy seat was to satisfy God's demand for justice and to appease and avert God's holy and righteous wrath. So that's what we've been looking at. And last week, explicitly, 
we saw this process is dependent on blood. Now, I wasn't physically here last Sunday, but as I, I caught up on the sermon and was listening to it, the only thing that kept running through my head as you're talking about blood was U2's Sunday Bloody Sunday. That's what last week will forever be known as in my head. But it's really jarring to think about the, the necessity of the blood, the, just the amount of blood that is shed to make atonement. But as we read, it says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And, and this shows us God's holiness and the, the depth of how repulsive sin is to him. But it also shows us God's grace in providing a means for forgiveness and atonement. But these old, old covenant um, pieces of worship were, were but a glimpse of God's love and grace and mercy. And Christ alone is where we see the fullness of that love, grace, and mercy. And so that's what the author keeps pointing us towards, chapter after chapter, section after section, including our passage this morning. He wants to demonstrate to his readers and us today the supremacy, sufficiency, and superiority of Christ, that Jesus is indeed better. So this morning, I want us to see that Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice purifies believers for entrance into a better place, that it eradicates sin in a better way, and gives hope as we eagerly await a better future. That's what I want want us to walk away with when we leave this text. So I think at this point, everyone's had enough time to find the passage. If not, I'm very sorry, but we're going to go right into it. So let's read together before we start breaking it down. Verses 23 to 28 in Hebrews chapter 9. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places year after year with blood not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting, or eagerly waiting for him. That is our text this morning. So let's just go right into entrance to a better place. So this verse 23 starts with a word, thus. Thus is like, therefore. It points us back to what we looked at last week, this usage of blood for purification. The author is is telling us all this bloodshed, all this sprinkling of the blood was necessary for the purification of these copies. Is what he refers to them as, copies of the heavenly things. A copy of something is, is something that resembles something else, but is typically lesser in some way. So if you were wondering this morning, 
why this guitar is up here and I'm not in the band and it's not plugged in. It has no guitar strap. It is for the sake of this illustration. This is what we call a copy. This is a copy of a Fender Stratocaster um, because Fender Stratocaster is my favorite guitar. No matter what guitar I hear, no matter what guitar I play, I will always think the Strat is the best. You can argue with me, but you will never win. <laughs> However, unfortunately, American-made Fender Stratocasters from Corona, California are very expensive instruments. And I, I, I can't get one yet. <laughs> so then there are the copies, the, the lesser items that resemble the greater thing. So this looks like a Strat. It kind of feels like a Strat. Um, it sounds kind of, you know, similar, but it's got lesser wood, the neck stinks, and uh, I really do like this guitar. <laughs> but if, if you were to hand this to me and then hand me a Strat, this thing's just getting chucked. It's a lesser object that points us to something better. It resembles it in some way, but it's pointing us to something greater. That's a copy. The tabernacle and all the pieces that went with it, the altars, the linens, the curtains, the priests, they were copies. They were earthly things that pointed to the better heavenly things. These copies could be purified with the blood of animals, but that is not the case with the heavenly things. Something better had to be sacrificed. This whole purification was, was necessary because of sin. To come before the presence of God, there needed to be this purification. Last week, Pastor Lou said, sin and God, they don't mix. Purification was essential. So the use of, of animals' blood was, was fine for the earthly copies. But the blood of animals would not suffice for the purification of the heavenly things. For heaven itself, a greater sacrifice was required. That sacrifice being, of course, Jesus' blood. Now you may be thinking, just like I did, why would heaven require purification? It's separate from this world. It, it, it's not stained with sin. What purification could it possibly need? There have been a lot of different perspectives on this. Um, this particular subject, and I feel as though for myself there has been no all-satisfying conclusion, um, but sometimes that's just how things are in Scripture. There is this mystery we don't understand, um, that we don't grasp in our finite minds, and that's okay. For me, it's okay. For some people, it will drive you absolutely buggy, but for me, it's okay. But I, I will answer it the best I can and bring you to the conclusion that I came to but know there are other perspectives out there. So the question at hand is, what was purified by Christ's blood? And for one, we know absolutely each believer is purified by Christ's blood. We saw that earlier in this chapter, right? Verses 13 and 14. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling uh, of defiled persons with ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So our conscience is purified. 
And our souls are purified, we know, because we're told in Scripture that God takes up his dwelling within believers. Ephesians 2.22, In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So certainly of the things that are purified by Christ's blood are his followers, but, but I don't think believers are the, the only thing the author is referring to here. We see in these verses an actual place, heaven. Specifically, he entered into heaven, not a place made by human hands. These earthly copies point to a real heavenly place where God dwells. It's not earth, it's otherworldly. Something completely separate, something better that these copies point us towards. And Christ's atoning work on the cross extends to believers and extends to heaven itself. What that work looks like exactly on the heavenly end, I don't know. I'm here, I'm not in heaven. Uh, I guess I'll let you know and send a postcard when I get there. You know, if I come back and get a book deal, that's what people do these days. But there's, but there is, there's some mystery there. Um, but there's some kind of purification happening. And I, I don't think it's happening because heaven is somehow defiled. Right? Heaven is where God dwells, where his presence is most fully known. If it were marred by sin, it wouldn't be any different than earth. Where we only see glimpses of that glory. But heaven is where he dwells, where his presence is most fully and where he is seen most beautifully. So I don't believe this purification is, is happening so that heaven can be made clean as though it's dirty. I believe it's so we can have access to a most holy and perfect place. So we can enter into where it was previously closed off. Because at the end of the day, the problem is still with our sinful nature. So Christ's better sacrifice purifies us for God to dwell within us. And it purifies heaven, again, us being the problem, but it purifies heaven for us to dwell with God. I believe in a very similar way, as the copies point to, obviously a better way, how the priests had to purify themselves and purify the temple. Richard D. Phillips expresses in his commentary, he says, the cleansing blood provides us with a relationship with God in this life and secures for us a place in heaven. End quote. It's glorious truth. So I believe it's, it covers us, it covers heaven. So he is purifying these heavenly things. And I think also in these verses, the author is demonstrating Christ's superiority. Remember, the author's intent with all of this is to show why Jesus is better than the systems they want to return to. So he tells them, Christ enter, has entered not into a holy place made with hands, human hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. As, as if to say, in this system that you want to return to, you're not getting the real thing. You're only getting the copy. You don't need to settle for the copy when Christ has made the better thing available. Jesus is in, is in heaven on our behalf, standing before not the ark, but the God of the ark. God himself. And that's better. And through his blood, he has given us access to that better place. 
Again, if someone walked in with the real deal Fender Strat and said to me, this has been paid for, here, you can have it. And if I went, no thanks, I've got my own. I'm a moron. I would be crazy. And that's what the author wants us to see in them turning back to the old ways. He wants them to see the absurdity of turning to the copy when the better thing is available. So often we turn to other things that give us glimpses of God that are shadows, but the better thing is available. Jesus' sacrifice has granted believers entrance to a better place. His sacrifice also eradicates sin in a better way. Moving on to verse 25. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So we're going to look at this verse in in three different parts or, or aspects. This is how my mind worked to break it down and and think about it. So we'll look at the amount of sacrifices, the source of the sacrifice, and the timing of the sacrifice. So the amount of sacrifices. The high priest had to enter the Holy Holies year after year. It was repeated. It was, it was a perpetual system. In and of itself, it had no end. Like if you're listening to music and you hit the repeat button, and it has like that little one and the repeat sign. You're just going over and over and over. It doesn't end. It was imperfect, and the work of it was incomplete. This was by design. It wasn't an oversight by God. God was pointing them toward the better thing. It was intentional. To quote Raymond Brown, he says, Whenever the sacrifices were offered, man realized his spiritual need. And although these animal offerings could not fully meet such a need, they pointed inward by exposing man's sin and forward to a time when adequate provision would be made for man's pardon and reconciliation, end quote. The adequate provision is, of course, spoiler alert, Jesus, the one who appeared once for all to put away sin. So we had the high priest repeatedly, Christ appears once to deal with sin. This is, again, it just demonstrates why Jesus is better His atoning work is a one-time act with eternal effects. Where the old covenant sacrifices were imperfect and their work was incomplete, Christ's work was perfect and final. It had no need of repeating. It it accomplished what, what God's holy standard required. If it were not a one-time final payment for sin, the author tells us that Christ would have to, he would have to suffer repeatedly from the foundations of the world. If you've been here on Good Friday, think about that suffering from the foundations of the world repeatedly. Essentially, he's saying, Christ's sacrifice was either fully sufficient or it wasn't sufficient at all, and he would just have to keep going through it to pay for man's sin. But Jesus says on the cross, it is finished. It's done. 
We saw back in Hebrews chapter 1, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. That act of sitting is a sign of completion. The work is done. Sin has been, as our author says, put away. I just want to look at this term very briefly, put away. It literally means that sin has been annulled. It has been declared null and void. Done. It's a a legal term. The the word that they used was legal in nature. And the sacrifices offered by the priests, um, they could appease God's judgment temporarily, but they couldn't bring it to an end. They couldn't liberate people from its curse. Again, they couldn't purify the conscience. They couldn't render sin ineffective. Only the blood of Christ can do that. Only the blood of Christ can do that. Which brings us to our second little sub-point here, that the source of the sacrifice. So the priest had to do it repeatedly. Christ did it once and for all. And they were different sacrifices. So we'll look at the source. Priests were not entering the Holy of Holies and spilling their own blood. There would be a lot of dead priests. That, not, enough, not enough Levites to go around. But they were shedding the blood of animals. They were making sacrifices on behalf of people, but it was never with their own blood. Christ, however, came to give his own life as a ransom for many. He put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. In John 15, 13, Jesus tells us, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. There's no act of love greater than what Christ did to eradicate sin. No priestly sacrifice could come close. Sin came into the world through one man and could only be remedied by such. And it couldn't just be any person, right? They had to be blameless. And we remember, we're told, Jesus in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He lived a life we were unable to, in perfect obedience to the Father. I know I'm riding off a lot of scriptures here, but Romans 5, 18-19. Just because the Bible says it better than I could, I'd rather just quote it. Romans 5, 18-19. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For just as one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. The source of the sacrifice, it was Jesus' own blood that was shed. It annuls sin. It gives life. And this powerful one-time self-sacrifice, it ushers in an entirely new age. That's what we see also here. Verse 26. But as it is, he, that is Jesus, appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. What's the author referring to? What is this end of the age? What does it mean? The end of the age is this time of fulfillment. It was this culmination of all that was prophesied in the Old Testament 
coming to its fulfillment. F.F. Bruce says, It is not that Christ happened to come at the time of fulfillment, but that his coming made that time the time of fulfillment. So it's not like Jesus was like, i got to catch the bus, I'm going to be late. It's the time of fulfillment. No, the fact that he arrived brought in the time of fulfillment. The days of anticipating the Messiah are over and the age of experiencing his finished work has come. This is the age we live in. The last days referred to in chapter 1, verse 2. And though we know that salvation has always been by faith through grace, Christ has ushered in a new age where we experience that grace and love more fully than ever before. And as such, we experience a joy and a peace and a hope that could not be experienced apart from Christ. That could not be experienced in the copy, but only by the true thing. The, the question is, do you, do you know that joy? Do you know that peace? Do you, do you have that hope? I hope that you do. See, we have a, a, a Savior who provides entrance into a better place, the eternal dwelling place of God who eradicates sin in a better way. It's once and for all by his own blood. And that same Savior gives us hope as we eagerly await a better future. Verse 27, And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. I believe the phrase goes, there's nothing in this life as certain but death and taxes. As much as we don't want to think about it, one day, we're all dead. That's a reality. It is appointed for man to die once. And shockingly, this idea of death is only people's number two fear. This is, listen to this. This is from well-known theologian Jerry Seinfeld. <laughs> he knew it was coming. He says, according to most studies, I'll, I'll, I'll read it like it's a real source too. <laughs> according to most studies, people's number one fear is public speaking. Number two is death. Death is number two. Does that sound right? This means to the average person, if you go to a funeral, you're better off in the casket than doing the eulogy. End quote. I figured before we dive into death, let's have a little levity. But seriously, the reality is, is we only get so much time in this life. We're born once and we're, it's appointed for man to die once. Life is not like Bill Murray's Groundhog Day where we can get hit by a bus and just wake up the next day. It's appointed for man to die once. For those who aspire to be reincarnated into something else, I'm sorry, that's just not the case. 
It's appointed for man to die once. And this appointment of death is a result of the sin of Adam. At the fall, Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. When Jesus came and took on flesh to dwell among his creation, to become like us, he also took on that aspect of the flesh. It was appointed also for Christ to die once. Reiterating just what we looked at in the previous verses. His sacrifice was not repeated. Why? Because he, being fully man, could only present himself as our spotless lamb once. Making atonement once. Satisfying God's wrath once. Paying our debt once. That's why he made his first appearance. To take care of sin. As it says, to bear the sins of many. In verse 26, we looked at the, the word put away. It meant to annul. But here it says Jesus came to bear our sins. This is actually different. This is not a legal term. It's a sacrificial term. Used to refer to the sacrifices in which the priest would, would lay on the altar and those sacrifices would bear the sins of the people. They would take that sin on themselves. Taking our sin, he gave his life on the cross. So he bore our sin and he put it away. He bore it so it could be brought to an end. I think of the words of the prophet Isaiah. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. And again, the sacrifice, this this bearing of sin was final in nature. It has been done once for all, not to be repeated, not to be added to. We can't add anything to what Christ has done. We certainly try, but there's nothing that can be added to the perfect work of Christ. There's nothing that can be added to something that's perfect. There will never be a Seinfeld reboot. It was good. End it. We can't add to a perfect work. All we can do is believe in faith that Christ was who he said he was, the eternal Son of God, and that he accomplished what he set out to accomplish, conquering sin and death. We just sang about that in Christ alone. And through faith in that work, by grace, we are saved. And in order to be saved from something, there has to be something there, right? You can't be saved from nothing. So what are we saved from? Well, our author tells us. We're appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. We see in verse 27. So not only is death inevitable for all, so is judgment. I bet you didn't think we were getting a hellfire and brimstone kind of sermon this morning. Unless you read ahead and saw, oh yeah, death and judgment's coming. But then that's the nature of expository preaching. Like talking judgment's not like fun. I wouldn't be like topical. Let's go judgment. I'm coming for you, sinners. No. But because judgment's a scary thing. We don't we don't like to be judged. 
We don't like to be judged by our own peers, let alone the most holy and righteous God of the universe. A little illustration. When I was in college, I had to take a, a homiletics class. Homiletics is a big word for preaching, essentially. So obviously, in the case of that class, I had to preach. Now, it wasn't just write a sermon, preach it, and uh, that's it. No, there is some judging that comes along. There's some critique. And it wasn't just the, the teacher in the back who would be critiquing as would be normal. They're the teacher. It's their job. But every student in the class also had this little form, and it was essentially a critique sheet. And so, you know, you're, you're up there preaching very uncomfortably, and you say something, and all of a sudden, like, you just see everyone's hands start writing. And you're like, oh, what did I say? What did I do with my hands? I don't know, but everyone wrote it down. I hate that feeling. It's not fun. Judgment is scary. It's an evaluation of what we've done. So when we die, there's a judgment that must take place. And our deeds are judged against God's holy standard, which is perfection. And when you put a sinful man up against a righteous God, the scale is going to tip toward damnation every time. That's frightening. There's a weight to that. And that weight should produce a healthy fear. The author, one of the authors of the Life Application Bible Commentary says that at God's judgment, there will be no higher court of appeal should the verdict not be to your liking. It's very true. There's no supreme court of heaven. There's one death, there's one judgment. So if you have not put your faith and tr- trust in Jesus, this, is, this sounds like very bad news this morning. It's not good news. Because apart from Christ, God's verdict on us will always be guilty. My goal is not to be a downer this morning. I'm just purely trying to be faithful to the truth of Scripture. And in our sin, we stand condemned. There's no second chance after death, as some would like to believe, where it's like, well, it doesn't matter what's here. When we get beyond here, I'll make it good. That's not how it works. Jesus himself says, for unless you believe that I am he, that is the Messiah, you will die in your sins. That's not me talking. That's Jesus. So I ask, where is your faith and trust placed? Where is your confidence placed? We've seen what Christ has done in this text this morning. He's given his own life, shed his own blood on the cross for the purpose of bearing the sins of many, for putting that sin away. He bore God's judgment on the cross and he stands in heaven on behalf of those who trusted him. Will you trust him? Listen again to the words of Christ, John three sixteen through 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 
For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Put your trust in the all-sufficient, once-and-for-all sacrifice of Christ. I implore you this morning so that you will not perish into eternal condemnation, but you will have everlasting life. To, To quote Pastor John Piper, he says, Now to be sure, there are better reasons to come to God than just to escape hell. But if fear is the only thing that will shake a person loose from his bondage to sin and cause him to consider Christ, then for love's sake, so be it. He goes on to say, There are better reasons for a child to obey his daddy than the fear of a spanking. But if that fear is the only thing that will keep him out of the street, then for love's sake, so be it. It's my hope that these words from from Hebrews would serve as a wake-up call this morning. But not so that we'll just stay in perpetual fear, that that would drive us and lead us to see God's love, to see his grace, to see his mercy, to see his goodness. Will you trust him? This is not fiction, this is reality. Now, for those of us who have put our faith and trust in Christ, this coming judgment shouldn't fill us with fear and worry because Jesus stood in our place, took our condemnation. John 5, 24, it was on the screen earlier. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. That's good news. Jesus is interceding on our behalf. Again, Richard Phillips, he says, For you, that is believers, judgment will be an open door to life everlasting, a portal to eternity as beloved children of God. That's our hope. That's our confidence. That's very good news. I wouldn't give just bad news without good news. Jesus appeared once to deal with sin. But our passage concludes with this statement. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Christ is coming back again. And this time it won't be as the suffering servant to make propitiation, to be our propitiation, I should say. It will be as our conquering king to come to save his people. What a picture. He's coming to claim his own. I feel as though many times we think and we talk about the second coming of Christ. It's very theoretical. It's very distant. Like One day Christ is coming some point at some time ish and we're almost disconnected from it but shouldn't we be waiting 
And not just waiting, but eagerly waiting with anticipation and a longing. Our, our house uh, that I, I live in here, not like our house, that's in like the, you know what I mean. Our house has a decent sized bay window. I realized the transition was just a little weird there, so that's why I'm just trying to give you some context. But our home in Gilderland, New York, has a bay window, and it's a good sized one, and you can see in it when you're coming home. One of my favorite things is if I'm coming home and I look and in the window is my daughter with this big old goofy grin that she has on her face and I, can, I can't hear it but I can hear the da-da coming out of her mouth. Some of you have heard it as she's left here before. It's quite boisterous, the da-da. But she's waiting there because she's overjoyed. She's anticipating. She's like, dad's coming home. And she's waiting in the window eagerly. And I'm going to hold on to that because one day she'll be a teenager. (laughs) And she may be waiting there, but it'll just be like, Dad, give me the keys, Dad. (laughs) And I'll be like, no smile for Dad, Dad? Don't be embarrassing. (laughs) Disclaimer, that's not how I think every teenage girl sounds. But there's the enjoyment and the excitement. Do we wait for Christ with such anticipation? Do we live each day with the hope that Christ could come at any moment? I know I don't. It's not on my mind most of the time. I'm just being honest. But why isn't it? Is there really a better hope that we have? When he comes in his second appearance, he's coming to save us from this world that's just riddled with sin and suffering and trials and tribulation. We should be out looking out the bay window with overwhelming joy and anticipation, eagerly waiting a better future. Are we longing for him to come? Now, again, just when I say eagerly waiting, I don't mean we should just, you know, be standing there like, Say, is he coming yet? I think I saw a cloud move. And we just do that all day long? No. We don't just stare at the sky. There's still work to be done. We work as we wait. The Great Commission is still our mission. We are still to to live our lives seeking to make disciples as Jesus has called us to. In fact, fact, this passage should really be spurring us on to that end. This reminder that it's appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment should give us an, an urgency to preach the gospel. It should remind us there's a real judgment that we don't want others to experience. Let us not forget that our area is in the top 10 most post Christian areas in the United States. There's an urgency for the gospel. The need is here. Yes, Christ is coming. We should be longing for that each and every day. But while we wait, we need to be diligent in sharing our hope. That's what the author is trying to communicate here. He's trying to steer this congregation to focus from the copies to the true things. He's trying to to reorient them to the hope of Christ. We should be pointing others to Christ. He's better. 
our culture so wrapped up in the things of this world. We are all guilty of the same. But the greatest things in this world are but mere shadows of Jesus who is better. Who created this world. Jesus is the only one who makes way for believers to enter into the better place. He's the only one who eradicates sin in the better way and he's the only one who gives us a hope for a better future. In just a little bit, the band's going to lead us in singing the song, All I Have is Christ. May that be our prayer this morning as we sing the words that say, Now Lord, I would be yours alone and live so all might see. The strength to follow your commands could never come from me. O oh, Father, use my ransomed life in any way you choose. And let my song forever be, my only boast is you. Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. He alone is better. Are we going to look to the copies? Or are we going to look to the one who the copy points to? And are we going to point others to him? It's my hope that we all could say, Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. Let's pray together. Father, I, I thank you. I thank you for this portion of your word for us this morning. Though only a few verses, and, but a, just a small little glimpse at the word you have for us. What a picture it gives us of how big and powerful you are. How good you are. How can we look at anything in this world and think it's better than you? Do we thank you for providing a way for us and, and sending your beloved son, Jesus Christ, to be our once-for-all sacrifice? So I pray this morning that your spirit would be softening our hearts, that you would open blinded eyes to see the beauty of Jesus Christ this morning. That today would be the day of salvation for some because of the truth of the gospel in your word. And for us who have trusted you, I ask that you would instill in us an, an urgency to share that good news of the love that we have experienced. That we would bring hope to a hopeless world that they would see that Jesus is better. That we are yours and yours alone and you can use us to declare that. Father, again, we thank you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.